Well, good morning, gentlemen. Hope you uh, had a good night. Short night. Um, we are uh, going to be covering the topic of biblical counseling and uh, personal discipleship this morning. And today, I think, is very, very helpful, as if all of Grace and Granite has not been very, very helpful. But this morning, I think it's going to, uh, it's going to bring some clarity um, to... Uh, to a number of things. A, the conditions of our own hearts, the conditions of the hearts of other people that you deal with, and B, why we say all of the answers are in the Bible alone. So we're going to be talking about the depravity of man and the sufficiency of Scripture. And um, we're not going to have a theological lesson on that, but we're actually going to show how those two things come out of Scripture and how they're applied to dealing with all of the different maladies and sins and issues that we have, which is vital, right? If we're going to counsel somebody, we're going to disciple somebody, we need to know what God has said about the condition of man and where to find the answers. When you mess those two things up, then you're just chasing your tail, which is what a lot of people end up doing. And it's also why there's all these different types of... of uh, of, of, of secondary approaches or um, other ways to try to fix problems, i.e. psychiatry or self-help or whatever it, it might be. Um, or uh, probably something that's even worse than psychiatry, uh, an integration model, which says that you can actually take God and put God with the world and shake that up, and then what comes out the bottom is is the right way to, to walk. And so we're not going to get to all the psychiatry and those kind of things today. We're going to lay the foundation um, from Scripture because that's our only authority. And then uh, I think it's going to be really, really helpful. But uh, we got a video, but before we start, we're going to start where we normally do in the book of Psalms. So, Psalm 12. And um, the Lord has chosen a wonderful psalm for us this morning, November the 12th, related to our topic. For the choir director upon an eight-stringed lyre, or lyre, a psalm of David. So it's David, and I think I've noted this to you before. But those superscriptions are just as inspired as the text. I mean, those are part of the, of the original. Now, the little headings above with, uh, in italics like in mine, God a helper against the treacherous is, is added by MacArthur, not by David. But this um, was part of the original. And so they, they tell us who wrote this psalm. And here's what David said under the inspiration of the Spirit. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. Have you ever felt that way? Like Elijah? I'm the only one, Lord. <laughs> We're the only church, Lord. You ever felt that way? Well, David did too. The godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak falsehood, to one another. With flattering lips and with a double tongue they speak. 
May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks great things, who have said with our tongue we prevail, our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? You ever pray that way? May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the the tongue that speaks great things. You may not say it exactly like David. Do you ever pray against evil? Do you ever pray against other people? The Bible gives you an illustration to do that. Pray against wicked people, not for their harm per se, but for their wickedness to stop, for them to be converted, for them not to do damage to other people. And if that means God intervening in some way to incapacitate them, then David has no problem praying You know, in that way. Um, the imprecatory Psalms, Lord, break their legs to protect them from themselves and from others. It sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? But it's right in Scripture. Look at verse 5. Because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord, and I will set him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in the furnace on the earth, refined seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will preserve him from this generation forever. The wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and uh, we just thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that we have a book that we can go to um, unlike any other book. It's it's not the words of men. It's It's the word of God. Your voice is there We've already learned, Lord, that we have to learn how to rightly divide it, and you haven't given some ancient secret uh, methodology or recipe to do that. It's, it's natural, historical, contextual, grammatical interpretation, and when we lay our hands over our mouths and let you speak uh, through your word, you, you reveal a number of things. You reveal who we are, as we'll see today. And you also reveal that you have all the answers, and they're right here in this book. Um, Lord, we do lament um, when we see the godliness cease and faithfulness fall away. Um, and, And yet, even in that, we can trust in you. David here cries out, the one who's afflicted cries out, and you answer. You keep us secure. You protect your people, regardless of what happens in the world. So bless us today. Teach us. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. We are going to watch John Piper at 6.08 in the morning. And that will get your blood pumping. Now here, before Nathan starts this, the title is, What is Sin? And you may have heard this before. Um, I think I've even shared it several years ago. But it is worth it. Pay attention. Piper is going to define sin. What do you think sin is? Most people limit that to like breaking the law, doing, you know, don't lie, don't commit murder, like transgression. And clearly that's part of sin. Transgression is part of sin. But the Bible says it goes much farther than, than commission. It goes to omission. We fall short of the glory of God, right? 
And the Bible also says that it includes iniquity, which is that really disgusting word, the disposition of our heart toward God. Why we don't love God, it's within our hearts. And so Piper, I think, does a really good job of helping us to, to grasp how deep and wide our sin really is. See, when you put it that way, you understand why the Bible says all have sinned, right? And sin is not just what we do. Sin is the disposition toward God. Um, we do get exercised a lot of, about a lot of things. His point was not that you shouldn't get exercised about those things that he mentioned. His point is, why don't we get so exercised about, about what's something's even greater? Because all of those things happen amongst the creatures, um, what our hearts really should be should be crying out about is is the fact that we we have uh, a fist that's continually lifted and even shaken um, toward uh, toward the Lord, and we have that because we are we are fallen, and we've been learning a lot about the fall in Ecclesiastes, haven't we? We've been talking about how the fall affects us and life and everything around it. We're going to talk this morning about how the fall has actually affected us. So open to page 109, if you're not already there. It's series 8, Biblical Counseling and Personal Discipleship. And I told you before, this is not just for biblical counselors. And you're going to see that this morning. Today is an apologetic for biblical soul care. 
biblical soul care. Yeah, Jim. Can I just add to that? Yeah. Um, Romans actually has a good definition for sin also. It says all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men mm. who hold the truth. Jesus is truth mm-hmm. in unrighteousness. Mm-hmm. We, that, that applies to us, too. We always, when we read that, we think the ungodly, the lost. But we, when we're not in God's Holy Spirit, we're being ungodly and unrighteous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Absolutely. You could even go, as we'll talk a little bit in a minute, the, the other side of that, which is we're commanded to love God. I mean, how did Jesus distill the commandments? To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And we don't do either one of those because, as Jim's saying, we love ourselves. You know, we, we even suppress the truth in unrighteousness, inner unrighteousness, the truth that, that comes to us. Well, look at this, an apologetic for biblical soul care. Notice it says biblical soul and care. So we're talking about the soul, and we're talking about the care that souls need, our souls and other people's souls. And and yet the adjective in front of it is biblical soul care, what the Bible says about the care that's needed for for the soul. True soul care must take its cue from the only authoritative source on the soul. Now, 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 notice the words. These are very important. True soul care must take its cue from the only authoritative source on the soul, namely the Scriptures. The lesson is an apologetic for the sufficiency of Scripture in soul care. Second... It's also a polemic. What's a polemic mean? Against. Yeah, criticism, an argument. It's also a polemic against plausible sounding solutions that are offered as alternatives to the biblical explanation. The principles found within this section on counseling and discipleship are a compilation of materials. And we give credit not only to our sister church in Jupiter, but also Dr. John. And a number of this is found in Rediscovering Biblical Counseling, those those Rediscovering books. So Piper, I think, helps us define what is sin, and it's even worse than, than that. Because when you hear all of those things, you're filtering them and defining, like, what does that mean? And you're doing that through a sin-cursed lens, through, through, through a heart that doesn't even fully grasp and understand. In order to understand or grasp this lesson that we're going to talk about, biblical soul care, how to provide care to a soul, you need to recognize, we need to recognize two foundational truths. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. One is man's condition... And two is God's knowledge about man's condition and about the solutions for man's condition and about any topic for that matter. So we'll talk about depravity, sinful depravity, total depravity, and then the sufficiency of Scripture. If you're going to talk about the soul, where is the best source to go to get information about the soul? Freud? Another man? Another soul? (laughs) The best place to get information about the soul is the creator who made that soul to begin with and who was there before he made the soul, who was there after 
and who has given us a wonderful book to define everything that we need to know about the soul. That's why what we mean by we say the scripture is sufficient. The scriptures don't cover every single thing that there is to be covered under the sun in the sense that it doesn't record uh, Einstein's scientific theory or all the different laws of, uh, you know, of uh, all the different natural laws. But the scripture is absolutely and totally sufficient to, to give us everything we need for life and godliness. To thoroughly equip us for every good work. To the, the scriptures are sufficient. What we mean by that is in the Bible, God has given us every single thing that we need. Nothing lacking in order for us to know who we are, ourselves, our own souls, to know who he is and all of the remedies for that. He is the creator, and he clearly knows his creation, right? I mean, that, that's pretty logical. Now, add on top of that, though, another problem. Say, here's the creator. He knows our, he knows our condition. He knows his creation. So we're going to go to his source to find out what he says about that. But the other problem that we have to add to that equation is the creation, us, we've got some problems, don't we? Everything about us is fundamentally flawed. We're broken. Sin has not just affected our bodies. I told you on Sunday night about how my body went haywire on Saturday evening. And as I was laying there, I had this thought. Two, two thoughts. This one was probably predominant. You know, I'm really weak and frail. <laughs> this body... I just take it for granted that it functions all the time and that everything does what it's supposed to do. And now I'm incapacitated. And the second thought I had was, I'm incapacitated and I want to serve God. I'm ready for tomorrow morning. I want to preach Ecclesiastes. <laughs> I'm fired up about it. But if my body doesn't work, I can't. And um, that was the thought that I had. The body is broken. The second thought then is, why is it broken? Well, it's not God's fault it's broken. I can't get mad at God that my heart's not knowing the right thing. And like you know, Bailey did whenever he was little, you can't get mad at Adam. Dad, I don't understand why I've got to go to hell because Adam was the one that you know followed Eve and, and ate the fruit. And I just asked him the same question that the Apostle Paul does. Yeah, Adam did do that. But have you ever sinned? yourself by your own choice well yeah okay so who's at fault adam and you right you know so the second thing i can't blame god about my condition my body's broken your body's broken you may be feeling that this morning not only that the bible says that our spirits dead it, it we'll talk specifically about what we mean by that today what we mean what we don't mean. And then the last part, which I think is really important here in this part of the lesson, is your mind's messed up. You can't think right. You would think wrongly apart from the Bible and the Holy Spirit. The natural man does not understand or comprehend the things of, of God. Left to ourselves, the world, unbelievers, left to themselves, what does the Bible say that they do? Jim brought it up in Romans 1. 
the truth that God declares from heaven. There's a God. The heavens declare the glory of God. There's a God. There's a creator. He's good. Look at all the beauty. Look at all the provision. Look at all these things. There is a God. Turn to this God. He's your creator. What does man do with that? Rejects it. Suppresses it in unrighteousness. Pays no attention to it. Makes gods in their own image. Whether that's a, a little four-footed beast or, or an idol or a God named Jesus that doesn't match the Jesus of the Bible. The devil doesn't care. Your heart doesn't care what name you give to your God or whether you confine him to an idol or an idea. That's what our hearts do. Um, and so the Bible says that we're without excuse. That's natural revelation. So God has given us a Bible and the Holy Spirit to come along and open our eyes. What do you sing? Amazing grace. You were blind, but now you see. How do you see? Well, you woke up one day, you know, and you got smarter than you were the day before, <laughs> right? Um, my mother was an English teacher, so she used to read me nursery rhymes. And I always think, when I think of that concept of little Jack Horner sat in the corner, you know that one? Stuck in his thumb and pulled out a plum and said, what a good boy am I. You didn't wake up one day and say, wow, what a good boy am I. I'm going to worship God today. You didn't do that. The Lord sent somebody to you, witnessed to you. You had parents that shared the gospel with you. You sat under a preacher. You, you picked up a tract. Some way God figured out how to get you the gospel. And when you came in contact with the gospel... As we also sing, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. And your dungeon filled with light. That wasn't natural. That was supernatural. It was something that God did. And he was gracious to do that. So your body, soul, and, and mind. And so we need the, the scriptures. So there's a number of passages that we could go to. But I want you to open to Genesis Chapter 1, because that's the apologetic that we're going to work through. Has man always been this way? No. Think of how significant it is the way a book starts, and think of how significant it is the way the Bible starts. From the very first verse declares, there is an eternal God, that created everything. And then he describes that creation. His power. He spoke it into existence. And the pinnacle of that creation is man created in his own image. It's a beautiful thing. All of the blessings that he gave. And then you know by chapter 3 things go downhill, don't they? Genesis account of the fall gives us the only depiction of man in a pre-fallen state as well as right at the fall. Now think about that. This is the only depiction of humankind, mankind, in a pre-fallen state. Was Adam and Eve different from you? Yeah, they were. Were they like you? Yeah. They were, or you like them, is probably the better way to say it. They came first. Yeah. You, as Romans says, sin in the likeness of Adam. You were born and 
with a sin nature after Adam. But think about prior to the fall. Adam and Eve were innocent. They didn't have a sin nature. You have a will. You have a volition. They had a will and a volition. But your will and volition is enslaved to sin. It's affected by your depravity. Your desires are corrupt, the Bible says. But Adam and Eve weren't. They had no sinful inclinations whatsoever. They were never tempted in the sense from within to do wrong. They were tempted externally, weren't they? And God knew all about that. And you have the story right here. Genesis 1, it not only portrays us the events that took place, but exposes the ultimate issues that have indelibly marked humanity. You have to understand the fall if you're going to understand biblical soul care. And many don't think that the fall was as bad as it really was. Um, and that, if you don't understand the fall in a biblical sense, is, is as bad as it was, then everything else from that point off on is, is, is going to be off. Um, look at what it says here in the, in the italics. Who has the authority to describe the soul's dimensions? Who can describe what's wrong with the soul and then give solutions for the care of the soul? You either deny the historicity of the fall as recorded in Genesis or acknowledge that the word of God both spells out the soul's need and points us to our remedy. Who has the authority to describe the soul's dimensions? Scientists? Somebody who's observed human behavior for hundreds of years? Well, you can learn a lot from observing human behavior for hundreds of years. Because human beings are basically the same. And one culture versus a different culture may do more things alike than, than another one. And another one doesn't do these things that the other does. But if you pull all of that together, you know what you'll come up with? You'll come up with the DSM-4 or 5 or 6 or whatever else is out there. Behaviors that are codified, that are, that are, that are listed. Okay, If you do all these behaviors, here are the behaviors. And then they assign a... A disorder to it or another category that's that's there. But obviously God has the ability to see what we can't see and tell us exactly why we do what we do and then also tell us the remedy for the reason that we do. Look at number one. Before the fall, God's creation was perfect and man was in a state of sinless perfection. Now I'm not going to ask us to read Genesis 1, 31 through 225, but somebody read uh, Genesis 1, 31, and then let me see what else I want to read here. Um, Let me read verse 15 through 24. Who wants to read the short one? All right. Who wants to read the long one? I saw Rich's hand. Did you, did you raise your hand, Rich? Thank you. 
All right, verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. All right. What is he saying is good? Well, this is the sixth day, so it's all of creation. And here's the, everything's good. It was good. It was good. It was good. And now it's very good. And that very good comes after verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, all of creation, over the birds of the sky and the cattle, over the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Subdue, rule. And then God tells man, behold, I've given you everything. And then... God saw in verse 31 all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. You don't find that kind of declaration after Genesis 3. And it was evening and morning on the sixth day. And the seventh day, God gave us the example of not to be a two-fisted worker, didn't he? He rested. We already worked on that. And then chapter 2 is kind of a drill down. Think of chapter 1, creation in the macro. In chapter 2, focusing specifically... On, on mankind. And Rich is going to read what God did with man. In chapter 2? Yeah, chapter 2, verse 15. Thank you. The Lord took the man and put, in him, and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Thank you for giving us your air this morning and being willing to read that, Rich. That was a lot. So you have man here before the fall, perfect in a state of sinless perfection. In verse 31, God saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good. And then... 1B, and the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Is nakedness a problem? Yeah. After the fall, it is, regardless of what culture wants to, to say. You remember the demoniac? This is a sidebar. You remember the demoniac? What happened to, what was the demoniac like before, while he was demon-possessed, before he got saved? He was running around naked as they say in West Virginia. And what happened to him after he got saved? He put some clothes on. 
Um, there's a few people that need to do that as well, don't they? This foreshadows what will soon be the polar opposite in 3.7. There was no self-interest, no self-consciousness, no corruption, and no shame. Before the fall, what does it mean to, to be in a state of sinless perfection? No self-interest? Not thinking about, you have a problem with thinking about yourself all the time? I do. comes right out of your heart. Adam didn't think about himself. No self-consciousness? No corruption? No shame? But this was an untested state of holiness and perfection. No soul care was needed yet. Soul's fine. No issues. And verse uh, verse 2. Number 2. In the garden, God established man with work to do with a simple parameter. You can't blame the fact that, you know, oh, God, you're, you're, you've heard this before. The Bible's so complicated. There's so many rules. I can't keep up with them all. Well, Adam didn't have that problem, did he? <laughs> he had one. Command to tend the garden. Rich read it for us, I think, didn't you? Yeah, 2.15. Cultivate and keep it. And the other thing that he had was he had a command to obey in the matter of the tree and its fruit. So he had a positive command, do this, but don't do this. And I want you to notice the note here because I think it's very helpful. There was no special quality in the fruit. The problem wasn't what the juice from whatever the fruit was that somehow tainted Adam. That's not Adam's problem. God had simply invested the tree with the moral test as a symbol of the human heart's commitment. God was communicating to Adam. I'm commanding you and want you to know that I'm sufficient. I'm giving you one command. I want you to trust me that I'm enough. When I give a command, I know what's best. When I give a command, I know the dangers if you violate it. I don't need to explain it any further than that. I give you a command to give you parameters so that you will say in your heart, you are all that I need. That's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's why it's there. And what did Adam do? Well, he followed his wife. It was all her fault, right? No. Well, there was some, there was an external temptation. Not an internal temptation, an external one. Untested state of holiness and perfection. No soul care needed yet, but we're getting ready to have massive soul care that's needed. Number three, at the fall, Satan tempted and deceived Eve, and Adam transgressed when he also ate the fruit. Now here is a deduction. Satan's fall occurred somewhere between Genesis 1.31 and the beginning of chapter 3. Why do we say that? Because God says everything's good, and then everything's not good after chapter 3. So... How did that happen? All the different theories that are there, 
I think you just let the Bible say what it says, and what the Bible doesn't say, you say, that must not be something that I need. Don't go out there and create all kinds of you know, gap theories and, and those types of things. And I add to Scripture, it's very clear that there was a fall in the angelic world, that Satan led that rebellion, you know this, and then as part of that rebellion, he came to earth and he tempted um, Eve, deceived her, and then Adam willfully transgressed God and ate the fruit. What could be? Man's fall occurred in Genesis 3, 1 through 6. <coughs> Satan appeared to Eve in the form of a serpent, and the immediate consequence came in verse 7. Look at verse 1 of Genesis 3. Notice Satan appeared to Eve in the form of a serpent. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die and the serpent said to the woman you shall not surely die for God knows that in the day you eat from it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise she took from it and ate and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together, made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord. Are you hearing a pattern here? Right after, in verse 7, after Genesis describes what took place and how it took place, immediately you hear the consequences. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Consequences. And the man said, The woman you have, you gave to be with me. She gave me from the tree, and I ate. Who, who, is, who is Adam impugning there? God. God. It's your fault. Then the woman, then the man said, the woman you gave me to be with. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me. It's his fault. The devil's fault. Flip Wilson. The devil made me do it. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, and now here comes the curse. And we've been swimming in that. And then the grace that comes. Look at verse 22. Here's the grace after the curse. You know the curse. There's the promise of the gospel in verse 15, the cursing of Satan and the serpent. Verse 16, the woman. Uh, pain will be multiplied in childbirth. Her desire will be for her husband. 
and he'll rule over you. There's the battle of the sexes right there as a part of the fall. Man wants to dominate and the woman wants to rise up and rule. And then to Adam, the ground's going to be cursed because of you and you're going to work and you're going to toil. And then you're going to return to the ground. You're going to die. Verse 19. Till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for your dust and to the dust you shall, you shall return. And here's grace. Now the man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. The grace of God. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. The Lord God said, Behold, man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil, experientially now. They don't have any new knowledge other than what they experienced. They're not like God. Now he might stretch out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. It's outside the garden. So he drove man out. And he put a guard there so he can't eat and remain in a sinful state. That's grace, 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 grace. What could God have done as the creator? Uh, as your mother said, I brought you into the world and I can take you out. God's greater than your mother. But he didn't, did he? He didn't. He covered them, clothed them, he provided for them, he protected them, and he even embedded a promise that he would redeem them one day. Look at verse uh, verse 4. Number 4, immediately following Adam's transgression, they had fallen from purity and innocence to wholesale corruption. I mean, this is not gradual. There's no evolution in sin. <laughs> I mean, this is immediate. From no self-interest, no self-consciousness, no corruption, no shame, to depravity. This is no gradual deterioration, but depravity is evident from the outset following their disobedience. This is wholesale corruption. Look at A, guilty. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Self-atoning. Immediately. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now think about this. They don't have any concept of this before. They only know God, and they're innocent, and they're good, and they know what he's revealed. I mean, this is early on in creation, and immediately now they start doing these things, right after the fall. This is the knowledge of good and evil experientially. This is what took place. This is the spiritual death that's that has now invaded their souls. Self-atoning. Avoiding accountability. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Do you, you see these things happening in your own heart? The tendency to do that? You know you're guilty. Self-atone. You try to find some other way to, to, fix your, to fix your problem. You hide from the Lord. You run from church. You run from a Christian friend. You, 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 don't, you don't want somebody to really press in on your soul. You, you love theology. You love talking about God, but you want to keep it out there at about that length because you don't want it to bring it in close enough to cut you because you know that it will. Self-avoiding accountability. They hid themselves in the presence of the Lord. Fearful. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. 
Where's fear come from? It's from the fall. And then there's a lack of fear that comes from the fall too, isn't there? There's no fear of God before their eyes. Self-preserving and blame-shifting. The woman gave me from the tree. Did Adam have to take from the tree? <laughs> Did he have to follow the woman? No. Well, that's what he said to, to God. Self-preserving, blame-shifting. Defiant. The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree. Adam accuses God of wickedness. And don't people do that all the time? How can, how can God call himself good and let all this evil happen in the world? I mean, I'm a good person. I try to help people. Why would God let this happen to me? People do that on a regular basis. Yeah. Uh, Bertrand Russell, the philosopher, did not believe in God. Mm. I'm sure he does now. Yeah. Um, he was asked, well, what happens if you die and you do meet God? And what are you going to say to him? Mm. And his response was, well, I'm going to tell him he did not give me enough evidence. Mm. And there's, right immediately, the first thing is, is I blame him. Yeah, totally. You remember the pat I mean, it's, it's you remember the passage in Luke 16, the rich man Lazarus about hell? You know, you remember, you know, Lazarus goes to the bosom of Abraham, and you can see a cross, and then there's the rich man that's there, and he cries out, you know, in the flame. Do you remember what what he says to Abraham? Um, send somebody back to warn my brothers. And you remember what Abraham says? They have Moses and the prophets. They don't. The, the disbelieving continue to be disbelieving eternally. They they never change. Yeah. They will not even believe the one rose from the dead. That's exactly right. Jesus rose from the dead. That's exactly right. And, you know, don't think that the depraved human beings are going to get better in hell. Why would they get any better in hell? They're going to get worse there. They're going to be tormented. What comes out of your heart whenever you're in pain? You know. You shake your fist at God's face. What happens in the tribulation? I mean, God's the one that is bringing wrath on the earth, and they're crying for the rocks to fall on them. They still will not repent. Revelation says that multiple times. And the point in Luke 16 is the blaming of God. Nay, Father Abraham. He says they have Moses and the prophets. What's he saying? No, that's not enough. For, to keep them from coming to this place. You haven't given me enough evidence in Moses and the prophets, in the Bible, in order to come here. It's your fault that I'm here. That's what that man is saying in, in hell. And Abraham answers exactly what Jim says. You know, um, If they will not believe Moses and the prophets, then they'll not believe even if one rises from, from the dead. Um, you're not going to come to Christ apart from the gospel operating in your heart through the Holy Spirit of God. You're not going to do that. And so here you have the defiance, and it's all through the scriptures. And then resisting confession. Watch the grace here in G. When God asked Adam, Adam, where are you? Was he lost? Did God like 
oh, I don't know where Adam's at. He must be really good hider behind the trees. God knew exactly where Adam was. Why is God asking this question? He's looking for confession. That's exactly right. Yeah, I, I actually wrote a little note at the end of the verse, at the end of verse 9, and wrote, I wrote down, this is the essential question of evangelism. Mm. When we're sharing the gospel, this is what we're trying to get them to understand mm. is where, or to admit, where are you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. God didn't ask Adam questions because he was ignorant. He wanted Adam to confess his transgression and gave him an opportunity to do so. That question's an opportunity. What would have happened, hypothetically, what would have happened if Adam in that moment would have said, I'm here, Lord, I sinned, you know, and he ran to the Lord? Well, God would have forgiven him, but that's not what happened. It's a condemnation of our of our nature. He wanted Adam to confess, and Adam didn't do that. So we know what's wrong with the soul. You can see that from the very early pages. And the rest of the Bible just fills in the gaps. Like, what does it mean to be guilty, self-atoning, avoiding accountability, fearful, self-preserving, blame-shifting, defiant, resisting confession? The rest of the Bible just just adds to the condemnation. So we know what's wrong with the soul. It's corrupt. It's self-conscious, it's impure, it's self-worshipping, it's self-pleasuring, it's hedonistic, it's self-atoning, it's self-preserving, it's self-protecting, it's guilty, it's afraid, it's dishonest, and it's unrepentant. And that is a pretty significant condemnation. That is the doctrine that is called... Total depravity. And it's taught all through the pages of, of Scripture. I have a handout for you before you leave today. But what do we mean? Okay, that's Genesis. What do we mean? I'm going off script here, so you're not going to find it in your notes. What do we mean when we mean when we use the term total depravity? Let me tell you what we don't mean when we use that term. Total depravity does not mean that all are equally bad. Everybody's totally depraved, but that doesn't mean that everybody's equally bad, meaning that you are, your sin is manifested to the same level as Hitler, per se. Total depravity does not mean we are as bad as we could be. You could be way worse than you are. And the Bible talks about common grace and Romans 13 and the laws restraining. You can use a very easy example. What what happens when people have more access to sin? Sin is easier to do. Do they do less or do they do more? Well, they do more. Uh, the hurricane comes through and it knocks all of the all of the the law enforcement out. What do people do? Well, some people go help their brothers, but some people go knock the windows out and loot the stores. What happened whenever you used to have to get a dirty magazine at the counter in the grocery store behind the brown wrapper and you had to embarrass yourself to ask for it? Um, versus now you can get it wherever in privacy. 
Has it, has it increased? Is a man's heart got any worse? Heart's the same. We were doing wicked things before in that category. We're still doing wicked things. Access increased. So we don't mean that we're as bad as we could be. There are restraining factors that, that are there. We also don't mean that we're entirely destitute of virtue. Being totally depraved doesn't mean that there's no possibility for any type of virtue. A sinner will help a little old lady across the street. People do, do good all the time, and they're, they're depraved. Think about Saul. Saul repented at one point with David. What did Judas do at the very end? I don't think that meant Judas was saved. He was the son of perdition. Judas had remorse. So it doesn't mean somebody who's totally depraved or in sin, you know, born in sin. It doesn't mean that, that they're completely destitute of any virtue or can't do anything good. Good, I'm putting those in quotes because good is what God defines as good, but virtue in the sense of those type of things. We don't mean by total depravity that human nature is evil itself. Human nature is not evil itself. We, we learned this morning we're made, in the, we're made in the image of God. You still have the image of God. Human nature itself is not evil. Human nature has been perverted by, by sin and produces evil. We also don't mean that man's spirit is inactive. It's it's dead toward God, but it's there. Now, understand we use Ephesians 2. You're dead in your trespasses and sins, and we use the example of being a dead man. A dead man can't do anything, and those are all accurate. But your spirit is there. Your unsaved spirit is there. It's just dead toward God. What it does mean... Since the fall, man is utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to do evil. So it doesn't mean that we're all equally bad. It doesn't mean that we're all as bad as we could be. It doesn't mean that we're entirely destitute of virtue. It doesn't mean that human nature is evil itself. It doesn't mean that man's spirit is inactive. It doesn't mean those five things what does it mean what does total depravity mean I'm reading from some theologies it means we possessed a fixed bias against the will of God it means we possess a fixed bias against the will of God it means that we are instinctively and willingly, we instinctively and willingly turn to evil. By instinct and by our will, we turn to evil. It means we're alienated from God at birth and a sinner by choice. This is important. We do not have an inability, as somebody totally depraved, to, to exercise volition. Somebody who's totally depraved. We do not have an inability to exercise volition. It doesn't mean because you're totally depraved that you don't have a will. You have a will. But an inability, it means we have an inability to be willing to exercise holy volitions. 
you have a will, your will's just corrupted. Your will follows your desires. Your will functions perfectly. It's just follows what you're inclined to do, and what you're inclined to do is not holy. And you just go after those things. So I understand we talk a lot about you know, free will or not having free will. I think that argument's even a fallacy. You have a will. Nobody denies that you have a will, regardless of where you land on the theological spectrum. Everybody says you have a will, but your will is not some independent thing that's disconnected from what you want to do. You, you desire to do things, and so you choose to do them, right? You, you, and sometimes you even choose contrary to what you desire, but there's still a higher desire there. You didn't want to get out of bed this morning. But you, you you did. Why did you do that? Because there was a greater desire that if I didn't get out of bed, I was going to miss grace and granite. Or I was going to miss work. And then there's punishment that's going to come. My boss is going to get mad. I may lose my job. So there's a higher desire operating there. You follow me? So you're, you choose. You make choices. But those choices are based on your desires and we just saw our desires are absolutely and totally corrupt to the core. We can't even tell how corrupt our desires are apart from God graciously revealing that in his word. And he does, which is why we stick within the, in the passages. The unsaved man does not choose between good and evil. Now, after the fall... The unsaved man chooses only between a greater or lesser evil. Adam and Eve could choose between good and evil. We now choose between a greater or lesser evil. Man is a free agent, but he cannot originate or generate the love of God in his heart. His will is free in the sense that it is not controlled by any force outside of himself. So this whole idea that somehow God is a puppet master and he's zapping you from heaven, that people believe that, nobody believes that. There is no external force. Now, God works in providence. There are circumstances. There are other things that are there. But you choose based on what's inside of you, and what's inside of you is is corrupt. Man's will is free in the sense that he's not controlled by any force outside of himself. But here are some really important questions. But how can he repent of his sin when he loves it? And how can he come to God whom he hates? Isn't that what John says? We don't come to God because we love Darkness rather than light. And we don't come to God because we hate the light. And who's the light in John? Jesus Christ. So don't get this idea that somehow man is out there just, just longing for somebody to give them the answer. And then they're, the minute the answer comes, they're going to run through the door. That they're just out there groping in the dark. And all you have to do is give them the answer. You know that's not true. You've given the gospel to all kinds of people, and they didn't run immediately. It's because of the disposition in their, in their heart, their fixed bias against God. 
And then finally, how can man even know these things? His condition. When his mind is at enmity with God, it's natural and it rejects the one who who loves him. Um, I have a handout that I'm going to give you now. And uh, I'm just going to, this is going to be your homework. But I want to, it's a list of a number of questions. You have that, Clay? It's a list of a number of questions and then the scriptures that go along uh, with it. I think it's really helpful that you can actually, we said in Genesis 1, 2 through 3, it's the before the fall and then the immediate effect of the fall. And the rest of the Bible explains how bad the fall was. These are all the different passages in Scripture, not all of them, but but a, a good smattering of uh, of the important ones that answer the question how bad how bad it was. And I'll just introduce it to you, and then you can take it home and uh, and 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 read it. You understand as, as Clay's passing that out. You understand the concept of progressive. What I mean by progressive revelation. Okay. Somebody describe this. what what is progressive revelation? It's God adding to a, a statement that He made uh, originally to give fuller explanation of what that original okay. statement meant. Like yeah. What we see here in Genesis three, we see uh, David expressing this in the, in the Psalms when he talks about being shaped in iniquity. Yeah. Yeah, so you can even think of it this way. Did Paul know more than Moses? Well, I mean, from a human standpoint, no. But the Apostle Paul had all of the Old Testament. I mean, both of them were under inspiration of the Spirit. But, you know, Moses knew that there was one who was coming, and he knew some things about God. But then God progressively reveals himself. Moses had enough in order to look to God by faith. Abraham had enough. But progressively, God is added, and now the canon's closed. You have the Old and New Testament, and you put you put both of those things um, together. So we have enough of the condemnation of man in Genesis one through three that tells us of the condition. But then God reveals more as He goes on. What is the very first scene after the fall? I told you that it's important how the Bible starts. There's a God. He's the creator, chapter 1. The pinnacle of his creation is mankind made in his image. Oh, let's zoom in on that, chapter 2. Let's zoom in on man and talk about how God created him, why he created him, the job that he gave him to do, and then what took place. Chapter 3 is the fall. Immediate consequence, immediate effect. Grace that comes right after the fall, not immediate judgment. And then what's the first scene after you come out of the garden? God puts them out of the garden, and now they're operating in a cursed world as cursed people. What's the very first scene? Cain and Abel. So if you have any question about how bad the fall was, God says, let me show you how bad it was. This is how bad it is. This is what human beings will do. They'll murder each other. Um, And then it gets even worse from there, isn't it? Chapter 5, chapter 6. What happens in chapter 6? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it's it's really bad. Verse 5, chapter 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Can you say that? I mean, can you add any more adjectives and adverbs in there to explain that there's no wiggle room in that? And the Lord was grievous, sorry, repented, King James says. The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And so he wipes out all of creation save Moses and his family. Was Moses? Not Moses. Noah. Sorry. Was Noah a good guy? Did he lack depravity? No. Nothing but grace. Noah was shown the favor of the Lord. Nothing in Noah to attract God's grace. God chose Noah just like he chose Abraham, just like he chose Israel, just like he chose you. And then he wipes them all out. And then it keeps going. I mean, verse uh, from Genesis 4 through Genesis 11 is evidence of how bad the fall is and the extent that God will go to to rescue his promise that he's going to redeem mankind. He makes this echo to the woman. There's a seed, and he, he says it to the, the serpent. You're going to bruise his heel. He's going to crush your head. I'm going to fix this. Covers them with grace. Puts them out of the garden. It's bad. It's bad. It's bad. He rescues. He rescues. He rescues. And chapter 12, what comes in Genesis chapter 12? There's a genealogy there right before that. Abraham is revealed, right? Father of faith. And is Abraham... A God-fearing man? He's a pagan. Uh, no, there were pagans then, but he's, he, he doesn't believe. He's an Ur. He's a, he's, his father's an unbeliever. Worships false gods. And God appears to Abraham. So now the plan starts to take shape there. But between chapter 4 and chapter 11, Cain and Abel, you know, the Nephilim, the flood, the Tower of Babel, let me prove to you that that Noah wasn't the answer and that he had depravity. After God saved Noah on the ark, what is the very first scene after the water recedes and Noah gets off the ark? What does Noah do? He gets drunk and what does his son do? Looks on his nakedness, whatever that means. It was bad. And there's a curse that comes again. There is, right after the flood and Noah gets off the ark, there is a, a, a new creation narrative, Right? Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Everything's changed. Um, you can now eat animals, could before. And then the very first scene is just like the very first scene, Cain and Abel, after the original creation and fall, after the second creation or the recreation, if you will, when God wipes everybody out, starts over with Noah and his family. And what is God saying? No, he's not the answer. Sin nature is still there. I still have to do something. And God still rescues. And so Noah has three sons. And do you remember when he pronounces the curse on Ham? And then his second son, do you remember he says, and you will find blessings in the tent of Shem. You know what that means? 
the tents of Shem, under somebody's tents, in their lineage, in their family, that's where you're going to find the answer. It's going to come from Shem. And do you know who comes from the line of Shem? Abraham. Abraham. That's exactly right. Jesus. David. I mean, it's right there. I mean, God provided us a Savior because we needed somebody outside of us to save us from ourselves. Well, look at this list before uh, I let you go. Here's a number of questions that this list answers. Is man basically good or basically evil? All men, are there any exceptions? Are people good down deep? Are men totally depraved? Is every faculty of the person corrupted? Mind, heart, will, choosing, affections, desires. Can men change themselves and still do good when they want to? Are men at least born pure? This is the clean slate or blank slate. That's what tabula rasa means. What is the natural disposition of man toward God? What is man's relationship to God? Can man then do anything to please God? Are men at least seeking God? Can the natural man comprehend the gospel or come to saving knowledge of God on his own? Can men of themselves accept God's gift of salvation? Do men choose God or come to him on their own? Who supplies faith, repentance, belief? Can men do anything to help themselves? then what becomes of our boasting? Now look at the very first one there. Is man basically good or basically evil? Ecclesiastes 7.29 This I see I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Romans 5.7-8 For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person... One will dare die. But God shows his love for us. You know, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know Romans five twelve through 19. And there's a couple more that are there. Does this apply to all men? Are there any exceptions? Psalm 143, 2. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Romans 11.32 For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Romans 3.23 We've already quoted this. For all have sinned. Chronicles 6.36 There is no one who does not sin. <laughs> Isaiah 53 All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Micah 7.2-4 the godly has perished from the earth. There is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood. Each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. The great man utters the evil desire of his soul and thus weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them, a thorn hedge. 
Romans 3, 9 through 12. What then? You know this one. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. They've all turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one who does good, not even one. And on and on and on. And you say, wow, that is really depressing. I want you to turn to Ephesians 2, and we'll close with this. I should let Clay read these verses, shouldn't I? That is a depressing scene. But you have to understand the bad news before the good news can ever come. And here's some good news. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the sun that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of our flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Two of the most beautiful words in all the Bible. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? Well, what's the result? So that in the ages to come, he might show his surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would... Walk in them. It is a depressing scene, but God intervened. And that's the good news. And here's more good news. You can share that good news with other people that are in that same condition that we just described. And you can't do anything in their heart. But that good news is the key that can unlock the door. And by sharing that, the Spirit of God can diffuse a quickening ray. And so that's our job. To share that good news and then rejoice whenever God does the work in our heart. Isn't that good? Amen. So then the next time we're going to talk about why these other plausible sounding alternatives don't work. And it should be obvious. Why did I belabor this? Because if we're really like that, that the Bible says, what in the world do you think psychiatry is going to do for you? Or five steps to fix your marriage. You may rearrange the deck chairs, but you're still on the Titanic, as they, as they say. So we'll figure that out next time. Father, we thank you. We love you. We ask you to dismiss us with your blessing. Help these men. Help me as we go today. Thank you, Lord, for your great grace. Thank you that while I was lost, you found me. Thank you that you saved my, my utter 
sin-sick soul. Thank you that you give me a good church and good men and a clear word to guide me. Protect us all, Lord. Keep us from trusting our own hearts. Help us to trust you, our merciful creator, in Jesus' name. Amen.